0: If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, let me give you the rundown. Basically, it's the easiest way to make a podcast and everything you need is all in one place. And here's how it works. Anchor lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup's like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to the most popular listening platforms, including Spotify, with a single tap. Anchor is also the only place you can publish a video podcast to Spotify. Spotify. With Anchor, creators can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. In March of 1856, a dead body washed onto the shores of the Mississippi River. Nothing out of the ordinary. In those days, people fished corpses from the river with alarming frequency but this body with its arms and legs tied to the chair struck an especially eerie chord Welcome to Uncommon History of the South podcast where we uncover little-known facts of uncommon history History is full of curious stories you will never discover in any textbook We uncover fun facts about historical people, interesting places, and everything in between. Hello and welcome to Uncommon History of the South. I'm Brian. And I'm Harold. Our guest tonight has written for a number of magazines, journals, guest columns about Kentucky and the relevance of history. His columns regularly appear in newspapers across the Commonwealth. He's the author of four books, including The New One murder on the Ohio Bell. Stuart Sanders, thank you for taking time to be part of Uncommon History of the South. Stuart, you write about history, Kentucky, and the value of our past. How did you become interested in history?
1: Well, first of all, thank you both for having me. I've been looking forward to this. And so I grew up in Lexington, Virginia, um, in the Shenandoah Valley, which is the uh, burial place of both Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. So I grew up surrounded by history. My father taught history at Washington and Lee University for about 43 years. And you know, it's just something I've always been interested in. I was, uh, you know, when we went to the school library, I was the kid flipping through World War II books. Um, and then just, you know, ended up working at the Lee Chapel, which is Robert e. Lee's burial site when I was in high school and, uh, got hooked on museums too. So it's just something that, you know, I've always been interested in and, uh, very appreciative of too.
0: So it was kind of a family tradition, I guess, the love of history.
1: Right. Yeah. My, my dad was lucky enough to have a sabbatical for about six weeks. We went to England when I was about eight years old. And, you know, that had a huge impact on me, too, as you can imagine, getting to go to, you know, some of the world's best museums, the Tower of London, and, you know, walking Hadrian's Wall, and just, you know, really getting uh, six weeks of of uh, brainwashing about the importance of history. So, you know, it's been something that I've always been interested in and just really thankful to have had those experiences growing up.
0: Wow. So, so your new book is uh, Murder on the Ohio Bell. What are your other three books? That way our listeners will, will kind of know some of your other books as well.
1: Yeah, sure. The, the first one I wrote was uh, is called Perryville Under Fire, the Aftermath of Kentucky's Largest Civil War Battle. And that one looks at um, how civilians and really the surrounding communities around Perryville contended with the aftermath of of the Battle of Perryville. My second book was the Battle of Mill Springs, Kentucky, Uh, which is a a short history of that battle, which took place near Somerset in January of 1862. And it was an important early turning point in the war. And then my third book was called uh, Manny's Confederate Brigade at the Battle of Perryville. And it looks at um, one Confederate brigade that was tasked with um, crushing the Union left flank at the battle and really turning the left and pushing that back. And many of those regiments sustained about 50 percent casualties. And uh, so it was one of the, the hardest fighting brigades at the Battle of Perryville. And then again, the fourth one that you just mentioned, Murder on the Ohio Bell, which just came out, um, is mainly about uh, a couple of murders that took place on a a steamboat called the Ohio Bell in 1856. Um, But it really looks at sort of bigger themes like interpersonal violence, vigilante justice, Southern honor culture, and um, sort of what what the rivers were like during the antebellum period.
0: Well, that's, that's great. And I'm kind of glad hopefully we can kind of focus on history on the, or murder on the Ohio bell, because I've always wanted to do a true crime podcast. So we'll yeah. get to kind of cross over tonight.
2: Yeah. Sounds great. Yep. Hey, Stuart, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, the Shenandoah Valley. I think of all the places on the earth, I think is one of the most beautiful uh, Americana places. I think of the Shenandoah Valley. Uh, been yeah. there, been there many times. Uh, love Washington and Lee University. I've been there at Lee Chapel. I've been out there and saw uh, where uh, Robert E. Lee is entombed and his horse traveler is buried right outside the chapel beside him. And right. it's just a neat place.
1: Yeah. And it's, you know, really lucky to grow up there. And I was just, that made me think of one thing. When I was a kid, uh, me and a buddy of mine, when we were probably seven or eight years old, we'd wander over to the Virginia Military Institute, which is right next to Washington and Lee and we'd go through the museum on campus there mainly because of the incredible firearms collection that they had. And, you know, the curators would always sort of look at us strangely, you know, who are these two kids coming into museum on a Saturday afternoon? But, you know, we were just really interested in military history and it sort of, you know, carried over into my adult life too. So, sure. um, you know, you look back at sort of what, what formulates you in terms of a career and, uh, growing up there certainly did that.
2: Sure. The, the, uh, the cannons there at the, at the, uh that the cadets used in that battle. I thought that fascinated me when I was there. I didn't realize yep. that they, they had little smaller size cannons to train, to train with, and they end up actually using them in a battle. So that was pretty, wow. yeah.
1: Yeah. They were, at, uh, the battle of new market, um, and there were actually, you know, I think it was around 13 cadets were killed there something like that. And it was, uh, around 20 at least. And several of them are actually still buried on, on posts there yeah uh, so you know there's a lot of reverence toward that battle and there's a huge painting in the museum there that depicts it and uh you know again all that it's i, I worked at the Perryville battlefield i was I became director of the Perryville battlefield preservation association and really you know growing up sort of entrenched in that civil war history is one thing that um got me interested in historic preservation and you know protecting battlefields too so Um, you know, I think it helped me with that first career.
2: Well, your, your book Perryville under fire. And I've lived in that area all my life, as you know, I mean, you've known another for many years and, uh, I learned so much reading that book. Um, you know, most people, they, when you talk about the battle of Perryville, you think about the, the actual fighting and the, you know, the real true military historians talking about the maneuvers and who won and what would have happened if this would have done the different and all this. And, uh, but most people don't think about is the human toll that it took on the community and the surrounding communities, um, what life was like for those folks. It was just really, really a, a, a day that changed Perryville forever. I always said it. would. Uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the things that surprised you when you were writing that book?
1: Yeah, I mean, a, a ton, actually. So, you know, as I mentioned, I, I worked for the Perryville Battlefield Preservation Association, and our office was right. Uh, downtown in Perryville on Merchant's Row. And, you know, it's 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 a row of, uh, for those of you who haven't been there, it's a, a great row of uh, preserved 1840s commercial buildings. And, you know, one thing I'd always heard working there was that, you know, every every house was a hospital. All these churches were makeshift field hospitals. And so in digging into the research, you know, I literally found, you know, every home, church, barn, shed, stable, anything with a business, anything with a, a roof essentially became a field hospital to deal with not only all of these wounded soldiers, but the thousands of sick men who also traveled with the armies. And there was a terrible drought in Kentucky um, in October of 1862, and soldiers were forced to drink out of really stagnant, muddy pools of water. And of course, they became sick. Um, and, you know, all those things interested me a lot. But one thing that really shocked me was just sort of how big the footprint of the aftermath of the battle was. And you look at all these communities that that suffered, you know, Bardstown had wounded troops. Lebanon had wounded troops. Harrodsburg and Danville did too. And, you know, Danville at the time had roughly 4,000 inhabitants, and there were more than 3,500 sick Union troops who were left in the courthouse, in private homes, and in churches in town, and, you know, completely overwhelmed the community. That'd be like having 15,000 sick people dropped in Danville today, you know, and we couldn't right. handle that now. Um, and they certainly couldn't handle it then. But, you know, the thing that really got me was the fact that. Um, you know, there were a lot of Union soldiers from the Midwest who were obviously fighting in, in Kentucky's largest battle at Perryville. And when they were wounded or killed, their relatives from Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin would come down to Perryville, visit the battle and either try to find their wounded loved ones, or they would try to find, you know, the graves of of their slain brothers and sons. And, you know, uncovering a lot of, you know, there's one letter, there was a man from Ohio who um, found the burial site of members of the 105th Ohio Infantry Regiment, which was um, literally, if, if you only know where the cornfield is on the battlefield, they were sort of buried right by White's Road, where White's Road sort of turns behind the cornfield between what we call the Open Knob and Starkweather's Hill. And they were buried in a, in a line. And this man from Ohio came down, found his son's remains, and he wrote a letter back to uh, his hometown paper, basically explaining how to find the graves, you know, what the initials meant on each stone or each, um, you know, wooden plank that had their initial scratched on it. But then, you know, what sort of really made me shudder was he, he sort of offered advice on the best time of year to, to get the corpse and where, uh, he should, you know, you could procure a coffin in town. And so, you know, you have this man who's suffering from his own grief, um, finding his slain son at Perryville, but he still has, you know, sort of the, um, the community love and the community pride to tell his his hometown. You know, if, if you're coming here to find your own loved one, these are the steps you need to take to do it. And so things like that were just really moving. Right. Um, you know what? So you know, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was just gonna say, you know, so 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 finding out about all these people who came down to the battlefield and you know exhumed the remains of their loved ones and found their loved ones that's what really sort of moved me the most. What is of the that,
0: total that. number buried there in that area of the, the Parable Battlefield?
1: You know, it's it's unknown, actually. And so the the Union dead were first buried in regimental plots. They were then moved to the Perryville National Cemetery that was west of town. But that, you know, the federal government could never get sort of a good claim on the property there. So they ended up moving the dead again to Camp Nelson. And the sad part is the records were lost. If you go to the old part of the Camp Nelson National Cemetery, most of the dead who were buried there are are listed as unknown. And then the okay. Confederates were buried in several pits um, on the battlefield. You know, there's the monument there and most of them were buried under there and others are buried on um, um, what was historically the Good Night Farm, too. But, you know, when we were preserving the battlefield, we always looked at it like a, just a large cemetery because you figure that there were graves that were never found or were never dug up. So, right. um, you know, it's it's uh, that's one reason it's sort of hollowed ground. It's not only because men fought there, but, you know, I'm sure that there's still people buried on that site beyond. Uh, you know, the marked cemeteries.
2: Sure. You know, uh, Stuart, one of the things I learned in your book was the closest hospital, and you correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm remembering incorrectly, but the closest hospital that could handle any amount of wounded was New Albany, Indiana?
1: Well, it was more, um, that was one of the farthest places that the wounded ended up getting to, and so it was was interesting, because if the farther you could get away from the battlefield, if you were wounded, the better. I mean, I think it improved your chances of survival, so you had a lot of walking wounded and men transported in in, uh, in wagons, who were, you know, eventually taken back to Louisville. And so, you know, not only is or the surrounding communities like Harrisburg and Danville and Springfield dealing with the wounded, but you know, again, people are there were so many uh, casualties that they were taken to New Albany. And part of the problem was there was just there was a lack of food, there was a lack of water, and there was a lack of medicine, uh, because Don Carlos Buell, who's the Union general in command at Perryville, ordered that only one ambulance should accompany every brigade, which essentially means that there was one small wagon of medical supplies for every 2,300 men in the Union Army. Um, So there were, you know, no chloroform to dull the pain of the wounded. and So we know that hundreds of amputations went on without any anesthesia whatsoever. And, uh, you know, pretty shocking to think about, especially when you consider that around the Henry P. Bottom House, one young boy who traveled from Springfield said that there was a pile of arms and legs that stood some four or five feet high. So again, hundreds of amputations that went on without any anesthesia, their hospitals spread out all over the state, uh, who were dealing with, you know, the, the effects of that battle.
2: Right. You know, one of the things that they didn't have any knowledge of at that time was germs and it's just right. surprising people forget that, you know? And so then obviously, uh, after the battle, you had all this disease breakout and, uh, yeah, so you had, people, you had people that were there for a long time after the battle. The recuperation. Yeah,
1: I mean, weeks and weeks. I think the last hospital closed in March of 1863. So you go from October 1862 till March of 1863. And then those people who were there in March were taken to uh, Danville and other communities where sort of longer term hospitals have been set up. And, you know, you made the great point about not understanding germs because, you know, because of this drought, not only did it spread uh, illnesses among the soldiers, but there's one Union doctor who said that he didn't have enough water to wash the blood from his hand for two days. So you figure this doctor's, you know, performing surgeries, he's checking on uh, wounded men and sick men, just, you know, sort of spreading disease. And, um, you know, one one very sad story to emerge from the battle is that of Colonel Curran Pope, who was a, uh, uh, a colonel of the 15th Kentucky Infantry Regiment. He, he fought on the hill above Henry P. Bottoms House on the Union right flank. And he was actually wounded in what was called, you know, the fleshy part of his shoulder uh, during the battle. But he ended up dying weeks later from typhoid. So he survived the battle, you know, but drank polluted water and ended up catching typhoid and, and died weeks later. So you have all these sort of forgotten casualties of the battle who were wounded, but either died of disease or, desi- you know, uh, well, was, died of infections.
2: Do you know the statistics on, I, I was trying to remember, I've, I can't remember that. You may know the statistics of how many died from disease versus uh being actual wounded
1: yeah i didn't get that sort of in the weeds on the casualty numbers but i remember bill boss who's a local doctor had done some work on uh you know the number of, of men who died of post battle infections and i think you know the last person who died it was mo- i think eight months after the battle you got a man who died sort of as res- a result of an infected wound so you know again these casualties went on for months and months and months after the battle and so long after the firing stopped Long after the black powder smoke was cleared away from, you know, the hills above Perryville, you know, men were still dying uh, from illnesses and from these wounds.
0: Right. I think that's something, too, most people or the common layperson when they go to a place like the Perryville battlefield don't really consider. uh, They just think about the war, the battle itself, but they don't think of all the side components that cause to death and, and a lot of the tragedy.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. And, you know, the civilian cost is something, too, that I explored in that book. And, you know, Henry P. Bottom, who owned most of the land upon which the battle was fought, I mean, his farm was literally swept clean. I mean, he had a barn that was hit by an artillery shell and cut on fire. But he had, um, I think he lost nine cows, 30 sheep, 22 tons of hay, 3,500 pounds of pork, about 4,000 pounds of bacon, two horses. And, you know, the list of of his losses just goes on and on. And he was personally never reimbursed for those losses. You know, it was just, it was around $80,000 of goods in today's money. Um, And, you know, there's one, one person commented later that for the first time ever, Henry P. Bottom and his family had to buy food to eat. because you know, they'd been self-sufficient farmers forever. And then, you know, again, soldiers swept the land clean and, uh you know, they had to start relying on buying food. So, you know, there are these sort of forgotten costs that we don't really think about today because you go to this pristine battlefield you see these you know, beautiful rolling hills. And, you know, now there are wildflowers out there. And, you know, you think, oh, what a peaceful place. But, you know, that that land was trashed after the battle. I mean, you know, there were broken caissons and cannons and dead horses and overturned wagons, pieces of uniforms and guns and knapsacks, you know, the the list of, of it goes on and on. And, you know, sort of the most harrowing accounts really talk about uh the free-ranging hogs that were um, digging up bodies and consuming the dead after the battle. And, you know, um that was really a lot of soldiers remarked upon that, and you know, they were obviously horrified to see it, and were just sort of shocked by the whole thing. So
2: that, you know, I think of, th- some of the stories Stuart passed down in my family was uh how they just totally they took the furniture out of the houses, the doors were taken off to use as stretchers. Yeah. And the furniture was burnt um because to use for firewood. Yep. And they would basically, of course, you know, anything to eat was gone. I mean, one side or the other would take it. I mean, you know, it was just, there was nothing left. And when those people, you know, two days after the battle, they come back home, a lot of them left because they were afraid to get caught up in that crossfire and they come home to nothing. I mean, had nothing and lucky to have a house standing, I guess. Right. And
1: um, One example I always use is the, the family of Charles King Kirkland lived Pretty close to what is now the park entrance. And, you know, they left when the battle was taking place. When they came home, their outbuildings had actually been dismantled and burned for firewood. You know, all their their cows and chickens were gone. And every piece of furniture in the house was destroyed and burned, except for one, you know, their cherry dining room table was pulled out in the front yard. It was used as an operating table. And uh, when it rained, you know, the severed arms and legs started sticking up from the dirt. And Mrs. Kirkland basically said, I'm not living here anymore. And the family moved down to Casey County, you know, where Kirkland descendants from his family still live today. So you have this, you know, one battle on one day in 1862 permanently displaced this one family from their home. And, uh, you know, really sad stuff. But I just, you know, it's one thing I found really, really compelling to look at um, about the battle.
2: Well, uh, for sake of time, we're going to move on, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Because I want to get your your last and latest book that I just finished. And, uh, man, I really enjoyed this book. Now, this is a shift of gears for you. Um, Right. And it's, um, first of all, tell me, where'd you get the idea? How did you discover this story? Where did this come from? Murder on the Ohio Bell.
1: So I I found the story. I was actually doing newspaper research on another project I was looking on, and I was scrolling through uh, some 1856 newspapers online, and I found this really short story, just about two paragraphs, about how a uh, a man, a dead man was fished out of the Mississippi River, uh, tied to a chair. And so he'd been tied to a chair, thrown in the water somehow, and drowned. And I really thought to myself, I said, well, you know, who would, who did this to this person? Who was this person? Why was he bound up like this and tossed in the river to suffer? You know, what what sort of bad luck befell him? And you know one thing led to another and I just started digging into the research and and uh discover the the story and uh has a few twists and turns but uh it was really interesting to research and you know learn more about sort of the history of steamboats and violence on steamboats especially
2: well you know we, a lot of us have you know been on the ohio bay i mean the the uh, bay of louisville uh right the the uh, what is the other one the uh, delta queen uh, I think there's one down in New Orleans I was on I can't remember the name of it. But, and I've read a lot about uh, steamboats. I've always been fascinated by that era. It seemed to be a real romantic, real uh, luxuriant way to travel. Uh, you know, we see pictures of all this. Uh, they were very, very well decorated Victorian furnishings. I mean, really elaborate. But the side of real life, <laughs> when you really read about how risky it was to travel by steamboat, uh, takes on a whole new dimension, doesn't it? Well, that's one right. of the
0: things, too. When I think of riverboats, I think river pirates and gamblers. Uh, right. You know, that's what comes to my mind. How much does that fit historically with riverboats?
1: It does. I mean, you know, there were there was gambling on a lot of boats. You know, the, the Ohio Bell, for example, it was a side-wheeled steamboat that was built in Cincinnati, and it ran uh, the Ohio and Mississippi rivers between Cincinnati and New Orleans, delivering goods and passengers. And, you know, there's one account, there was a, a – a gambler on board who would he called them suckers but he would sort of separate suckers from their money playing games of three card money <laughs> and uh the the problem was though the captain came up and wanted to play and the gambler didn't want to play with him and the captain bet a large sum and lost and so then the captain shut down the game and uh you know the the gambler sort of kicked himself for ever letting the captain play but eventually he gave the captain his money back and uh and they ended up playing it but you know one thing that interested me in doing this book is sort of finding out how dangerous it really was to to ride on a steamboat. I mean, you know, boilers weren't necessarily manufactured well. So the risk of explosion was sort of ever present on board. And, you know, I I think the statistic is around 21% of all antebellum river boats either burned or exploded. And uh, most boats only lasted an average of five years on the river. So You know, you you took your life in your own hands when you were traveling on one of these things because there was no regulation or, you know, very little oversight. There was some regulation of the law books, but, um, you know, pretty dangerous. And then, you know, in this case, the Ohio Bell, you have uh, a murder on board that's the central focus of the book. So in an era where a lot of people carried either concealed buoy knives or or pistols, you know, these uh, steamboats with a lot of whiskey and gambling and armed men and sort of Southern honor culture could be a pretty deadly crucible for people. Uh, you know, when weapons and uh, a lot of liquor and gambling was involved.
0: And I'm sure river travel during this time was like a major freeway, you know, compared to today. I mean, there was a lot of oh, goods, yeah. a lot of people traveled this way.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, they were hauling tons and tons of freight at ports up and down the river. And I found uh, on the Ohio Bell, there was one pre- or two presidential elections where, you know, there were well over, you know, 15 to 20 states represented. So you had this sort of um, they were kind of the great equalizer in terms of bringing together all these cultures and, uh, you know, slaves were, were transported on these, these river boats And the book talks a little bit about a fugitive slave case that they were involved in, for example, but, you know, it, every sort of cargo was carried, you know, from passengers to, you know, to, uh, to whiskey and butter and live livestock and, and all sorts of things. So it was, it was sort of the super highway of, of, you know, the 1850s.
2: Stuart, I was in Kansas city, um, few years ago and we stopped at a a museum there called the uh the uh arabia steamboat museum oh yeah it's great i've been there you've been there and you know if anybody's out there and and wants to go to that i'm telling you if you want to get a an eye opening on what was on a riverboat uh this boat went down for our listeners this boat went down was 1851 or something like that Right. And then the river moved and uh, the boat ended up in the middle of a cornfield. And anyway, this father and his sons uh, dug it up basically um, and uh, put all the stuff in a museum. And it was absolutely mind boggling how much yeah, the volume of stuff that was on one of these boats. So they were, they were a huge, you know, you had the gambling and the, and the, and the people being transported, but you had a lot of cargo and goods going on up and down the river too, didn't you?
1: Oh yeah. Tons and tons of the cargo and, you know, that's why when one of these things burned or exploded, it was such a loss for people because, uh, you know, it was this is what was uh, uh, stocking general stores all up and down the south. You know, they were getting, you know, uh, pork, of course, was huge in Cincinnati. You know, pork packing was was major. And so, you know, Cincinnati was sending a lot of meat down south. You know, Kentuckians, of course, were sending whiskey down south and then uh, furniture. And there's even one account I found where the Ohio Bell delivered the first um, um, sort of fire extinguisher down to New Orleans for the first time. And so, you know, they're even getting kind of technological advancements uh, thanks to steamboat travel, too. And, of course, you know, then railroads came around and, you know, really knocked the wind out of uh, the sails in terms of steamboats, of course. But, uh, you know, there were still active steamboats up and down the Ohio and Mississippi rivers, you know, well into the early 20th century.
0: Could you tell us a little bit about uh, your book without giving the ending away?
1: Yeah, sure. Essentially, in in March of 1856, the Ohio Bell stopped in Smithland, Kentucky, which is on the Ohio River near Paducah. And a uh, Mississippian got on board who um, appeared to have been drinking. And he sort of claimed to have come from a very prominent family. And uh, when he got on board, he started drinking again, went to a barber for a, a shave and a haircut. And when he when he tried to pay the boat's clerk, the clerk said the money was counterfeit. Um, and, of course, this, this started a, a, a fight and the, the Mississippian began screaming at the clerk who then basically manhandled him out of the cabin. And after he pushed this clerk um, or, or pushed this Mississippian out of the, the cabin, the Mississippian promptly pulled a pistol and shot and killed him. Um, it was sort of this great affront, you know, for a, quote unquote, lower class clerk to put his hands on, a mis- on an aristocratic Mississippian. And, you know, when you shoot someone on a steamboat, of course, you have nowhere to run. and he uh, ran up to the top of the deck. The crew caught him, beat him severely. And thanks to a very famous actress named Matilda Heron, who was on board, even though the crew was about to to lynch the man or drown the Mississippian, um, she managed to do this emotional appeal and and saved him. Um, So they decided to then tie him up um, to a chair uh, by the engine room. And then, of course, the man disappeared. And as Harold mentioned, you know, I found the story, uh, uh, because of a man was found drowned in the Mississippi river. So his, his fate is fairly clear what happened to him, but there is a twist in the story in that he was a Mississippian, but he wasn't who he said he was. Um, he had sort of mm-hmm. a really dark, dark checkered past. So the story really looks at, you know, through the lens of this murder, it's about interpersonal violence. It's about vigilante justice, and it's about Southern honor culture all wrapped into that. And, You know, we sort of tend to forget that in the 1850s, it was a pretty rough and tumble time for for uh, justice and law enforcement. Um, Around that time, uh, you know, in 1855, for example, there were the Bloody Monday riots in Louisville, where on an election day, um, members of the Know Nothing Party attacked and beat and killed dozens of um, Irish and German immigrants uh, who were out voting. And, you know, sort of mob rule and vigilante justice was pretty you know, unfortunately, common along the Ohio and Mississippi rivers. So what happened on that boat was essentially a reflection of of kind of the broader culture.
0: Well, you'd mentioned the Southern honor culture. Can you talk about it just a little bit, what it was like during that time?
1: Yeah, sure. And and so honor is essentially how your community viewed you as as an upper class white Southerner. And it was sort of like your own self-perception and how that was reflected by your larger community. And the main thing that these Southerners wanted to avoid was public shame. And so in this instance, when this lower class clerk manhandled the Mississippian out, he sort of insulted the man's uh, manhood and also his honor, um, because what it what it meant was in, in a Southern culture, if you were treated poorly by someone of your same class, you know, you might challenge that man to a duel. But if a lower class person insulted you, you're expected to uh, respond mm-hmm. with violence almost immediately. And typically it was horse or caning the person. And so this was sort of this set of external rules that guided society among, you know, upper-class white Southerners. And in this instance, you know, again, it, the, the crew of this boat didn't respect the Mississippians' claim to honor that he had the, you know, this only choice was to shoot this poor poor clerk who was, you know, among the favorites. So, um, you know, the honor culture stuff's very interesting, too, and really guided Kentu- Kentucky in a lot of ways and, and guided the rest of the South, at least among upper-class people. And there's a a noted Kentucky attorney named uh, Ben Harden who's from Bardstown and he called these people sort of the Bowie knife and pistol gentry uh, because they were known to sort of, um, you know, wander around with, you know, armed to the teeth. And, and uh, as one person said, you know, they would, they'd pull a pistol if a cat tread on their toe. I mean, sort of hypersensitive and ready to, uh, to use violence as a means of conflict resolution. And and so, you know, digging into that was pretty interesting. And uh, it's kind of, one of the sort of guiding threads uh, throughout the book about, you know, how to, how, how does violence sort of use? Yeah, go ahead, Harold.
2: You know how that uh, uh, kind of plays into us in the civil war, Stuart, you remember that a lot of um, the units fought with people from their community. Right. And, you know, there was many instances of where they would, uh, we had to work on a microphone here just a second. There were many instances where they would go into a, a battle, charge a position that seemed to be just crazy. You know, why would you do that? Right. And the and the whole thing is they'd rather I guess die in battle than to go home and be called a coward. I mean, yeah, and it's it just it was that important to them. They'd re- they'd really rather charge into a, a like Pickett's charge at Gettysburg or something. They'd rather do that than go home and be labeled a coward.
1: Right? And I th- I think, you know, even modern warfare has those instances too, where it's, you, you know, you don't want to let down the guy next to you. Cause I, I remember this clear as day I was given a tour of the Perryville battlefield one time um, to a civil war roundtable, And this lady said, why would they charge a hill like that? Uh, and we were at the bottom house. And I remember this man turned to me, he's an older guy. And he said, well, he goes, hell, I, I charged a machine gun nest by myself in the Korean war. And so, you know, that just sort of stopped everybody in their tracks. And, you know, those moments of uh, sort of heroism, it's it's mainly to save sort of the guy next to you. But, you know, one interesting, to tie it back to Perryville again, the whole honor culture thing, I wrote my third book on George Earl Maney's brigade. And after the Battle of Perryville, Maney was essentially charged um, with cowardice. There was a doctor who claimed that he didn't advance with his troops, that he was sort of lurking in the rear. And the reason was because Maney would actually, his horse had gotten spooked and kicked him in the head. So he wasn't able to go with his troops the whole time. But Maney actually... Uh, challenged this doctor to a duel, and they fought a duel um, as a result of that. So, you know, even honor existed after Perryville in that sense of people, you know, taking insults so seriously and, and using that honor culture as a means to uh, settle a conflict, improve their, you know, manhood,
0: essentially. Well, what were the people like that worked on the river boats?
1: It's a, That's a great question. I mean, it was a really interesting mix of people. I mean, you had um a lot of immigrants you had um, um freed african americans you had some sl- enslaved people who were leased out to different river boats and so it was just a wild mix and you know again you have this mix of people that's one reason violence was so prevalent and um you know there's i've I found one instance recently where um uh, a, a a guy talked about how all these irish immigrants on board would sort of sneak and get into the whiskey and then he'd have to go down uh, you know under the boat and sort of break up the fights that were happening So you know it was a it was was a pretty rough transient life for people. Um, You know they would hop from boat to boat and work, you know different places, and you know essentially lived on the rivers. Um, You know John Sebastian, who was the captain of the Ohio Bell, who ended up eventually lost his arm in the Civil War while piloting a Union gunboat. And I talk about you know the Bell's sort of history during the Civil War too. He actually started as a riverboat pilot apprentice at age fifteen. So you know these people lived on the river their entire lives and worked on the river their entire lives and you know what amazed me is you know these these uh riverboat pilots were just unflappable i mean some of the bravest people and you think about it you know if you can if you can guide a a massive riverboat down sort of a raging mississippi river at night during a storm you know nothing's going to scare you and uh you know stories like that have always really really compelled me
0: Well, was uh, the ohio bell captured at one time by the south
1: yeah it was so it was a cincinnati owned boat and The interesting thing like during the secession crisis you know they're still running you had states seceding all over the place and they were still running goods between cincinnati and uh and uh, new orleans and one time when they were down in new orleans the governor of arkansas demanded that all cincinnati steamboats be seized because residents of cincinnati had taken uh weapons that were supposed to be heading down to the arkansas militia so when the ohio Bell pulled into napoleon arkansas on the mississippi river to get some uh, wood to refuel Sort of a ragtag bunch of secessionists pointed a cannon at the boat, uh, you know, pointed muskets at it and and took it over. And so it was under uh, Confederate hands for a number of months. And then uh, finally, after the Battle of Island Number 10, um, it ended up going back into Union hands and the Union Army refused to turn it over to the owners. And so it then for a number of years was used as a hospital ship and a troop transport and had this you know sort of crazy history as a, a Civil War vessel. But the captain of the boat, John Sebastian, who I mentioned earlier, he was so angry that, uh, you know, these secessionists had stolen his boat. He immediately enlisted in the Union Army, became a, a gunboat pilot. <laughs> and uh, again, you know, uh, uh, he was fighting the ironclad Confederate boat, the Arkansas, in a like horrific battle and uh, ended up losing his arm. And, you know, he eventually piloted riverboats again um, after the war. And then he became... The treasurer of Cincinnati, which was pretty lucrative, and finally moved to Emporia or to Kansas, where he became a, a cattle baron. So, you know, his life, which I talk about in the book, is pretty interesting too. You know, there's a lot of crazy stories.
2: Stuart, one of the little, little detail things that we don't think about in, in our podcast, we try to bring some things like this out. And that is one of the things I've noticed about pictures, photographs that I see along rivers in this time. There's not a tree standing anywhere. (laughs) Right. And people, And just think about now, you're going to take a boat that costs several thousand dollars, probably today in today's money, millions of dollars, and you're going down a river. And and although it's a major river in America, you're still going to depend on local people cutting wood, cording it up, that you could pull in and load wood so you can fire your boilers to keep going down the river.
1: Yeah, and that's something people don't think about. I think a lot of people just assume it's coal that was being burned, but, you know, more often it was wood. And there were, you know, hundreds of wood yards that, you know, like a plantation in Arkansas, for example, would set up on the, it ran up to the river, you know, a big part of their business would be just having, you know, their enslaved people chopping up wood all day and then selling it to steamboats. And, you know, that became, you know, it was a major economic impact on a lot of these farms and plantations. You're absolutely right. I mean, the wood was gone all up and down the river, um, with the exception, you know, a lot of times, you know, two of some trees would just fall in and then would create snags in the river that would also endanger the boat. So yeah, today um, we have
2: like core, I know my uncle did that. He, he was, uh, worked on the core engineers and their job was to dredge out, you know, the, the main navigation channels along the right. Ohio, Kentucky, and I guess Mississippi as well. But the, in this day and time, that no, that was done. You, you, you depended on the skill of that riverboat captain to avoid those things. How many, yeah.
0: during this time, how many riverboats would be running from Cincinnati to Louisiana?
1: Well, um, a, a fair number, actually, it's sort of around the, in around 1855, there were about 700 riverboats on Western rivers. And so that would include everything from, you know, the Ohio, the Mississippi, the Arkansas, the Kentucky, and all, you know, all those tributaries. So, you probably had about, you know, between 10 and 12 running a pretty regular route between those two cities specifically. But you also had Cincinnati-based boats who were going to St. Louis or they're going up the river toward Pittsburgh. So, you know, Cincinnati was sort of, um, and Louisville, too, were major steamboat manufacturing areas. And, you know, they had dozens of boats leaving there every day. And if you go to the Cincinnati Public Library's website, they have a, an 1848 uh, panoramic photograph of the Cincinnati River front, and the Ohio Bell is actually pictured in that, and finding that, you know, uh, you know, as it's, it's, it's Harold knows, doing a lot of research, I mean, you know, it's that one sort of uh, Holy Grail moment where, you know, you find this picture, and I was shocked, it was the, there are actually three boats that ran under the name the Ohio Bell, um, and the first two probably burned, and um, this was a picture of the second one, it was built, I think it was around 1846, I think, and, um, you know, finding that was incredible, but if you go to the Cincinnati Public Library website, you can actually look at that panoramic image that shows you, you know, the businesses and the boats that just, you know, thrived on that that riverfront. I mean, you know, constantly boats coming up and down the river. And
0: So um, would a company have, say, a riverboat leaving Cincinnati and then have one in Louisiana or St. Louis leaving the same time? I mean, was there like a circuit? How how did that operate?
1: Exactly, yeah. They were called packet boats, and uh, sort of the packet boat concept was that, exactly as you explained it, you'd have, you know, a number – it was the idea was that a packet boat would leave from a specific port at a specific time, heading to another port at that specific time. So yeah, while you know the Ohio Bell was leaving Cincinnati, for example, the Queen of the West or the Mars or another boat would be heading upriver, and uh, you know they'd pass somewhere hopefully in the middle. And and that's one reason that you know riverboat travel became so dangerous because you had these competing packet lines that would urge their you know these crews, you know you've got to make a better time because if we're the fastest boat on the river will sell more tickets and more people will, um, you know, uh, uh, put their freight on board. But the problem was, you know, it was racing on boats. It caused a lot of the explosions. And uh, there was one in 1838 called the Moselle that had been racing. And that explosion right outside of Cincinnati, which killed dozens of people, I think, um, really led to the first uh, sort of steamboat regulations in uh, in the country. So you have these accidents that actually cause regulations. But you know, it was that need for speed and that need to, you know, show off that you were the fastest boat that ended up, you know, costing a lot of lives, including the crew and, and the captains on a number of these vessels.
0: Well, I, what a great story. Thank you for uh, being part of our podcast tonight. We're, real quick, where could folks find your books?
1: Um, They're available on the University Press Kentucky website. They're available on Amazon.com. If you search for Murder on the Ohio Bell or if you find my author page, which is uh, just search for Stuart S-T-U-A-R-T-W Sanders, Um, you know, that's where you'll find me. So I appreciate you guys having me. It's been a lot of fun. Well,
0: definitely want to have you back. You've been this is the first time we've actually interviewed. uh, We've kind of changed our format up tonight and you have been a great guest. Okay. Oh, thank I'll, you so much. Uh, really,
2: really enjoyed it. Uh, you and I have known one another a long time. I really respect you as a historian and a great guy. And uh, yeah, I knew it would be good. and I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and thank you so well, much, Darrell. I really appreciate and you all having me. Definitely, so
0: much. you know. Hopefully, we can have you back in the future. So.
2: Hey, anytime, Brian. Thanks right. so much. Thank
0: you. Thank you for being part of Uncommon History of the South podcast. If you would like to help support our podcast, please share our podcast with your friends. Leave a five star review and comment. This will help others find our podcast. And you can now find us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So please make sure to like us, subscribe, and follow. And we'll be back next week with a new episode of Uncommon History of the South.